Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash POS for a $1 per month trial. Welcome to the Sunday edition of CNN Five Things. I'm David Rind. And like every Sunday, we're spending five minutes with one of our correspondents here at CNN to talk about a new topic more in depth so we can understand it better. And today we're talking about climate change. Ida made landfall eight days ago as a Category 4 hurricane. Since then, more than 60 people have died. Look how that water is just pouring into the New York City subway. So the entire New York City subway system out of commission. Torrential rains and severe flooding are causing havoc across Europe. It seems like no corner of the globe has been spared from unprecedented weather events this year. And scientists say, make no mistake, Climate change is behind many of them. In Portland, Oregon, we set an all-time record high of 108 on Saturday. The oppressive heat mixed with an ongoing drought is also leaving some in California without running water. Wells now high and dry. They're also warning that time is running out for the world to do something before we get to the point of no return, which is why all eyes will be on Glasgow, Scotland this week as world leaders gather for another high-stakes climate summit. If you hear somebody mention COP26 this week, that is what they're talking about. So let's spend five minutes with someone who will be there. CNN's Bill Weir is our chief climate correspondent, and he'll be on the ground for us in Glasgow this week. So, Bill, first of all, what is COP26 and why is it different than any of the other dozens of climate conferences I hear about every year? (laughs) It's the conference of parties. That is parties who are, you know, signatories to, hey, we're all setting our planet on fire. We should do something about it. Uh, And then this is the 26th time they've had this conversation. So (laughs) it's anybody's guess how this is going to be any different. Day or night in the countdown to COP21, the World Conference on Climate Change, it's hard to miss that something major is afoot here. We have come to Paris to show our resolve. So back in 2015 is when the world finally came together. 190 countries agree, okay, we need to do something about this. 14 of the 15 warmest years on record have occurred since the year 2000. And 2015 is on pace to be the warmest year of all. And we're gonna aim for this lower temperature target to save much of life as as we know it, and everything was great. I see the reaction is positive. There are no objections. The Paris Agreement is accepted. Since then, the only country that's practically meeting their pledges is the Gambia, tiny country in Africa. And none of the others, even in their best climate pledges, would not still get us to 1.5 because the world has changed so much. It has bent the curve. Before Paris, the world was on track to be three and a half, four degrees above pre-industrial, which would have been literal hell on earth. We're now closer to like 2.7 to 3.1, thanks to a boom in clean alternatives. The pledges that are in place would get us to around two, between two and 2.4. But if we had started in the year 2000, it would have been a bunny slope down. Now it's a double black diamond hmm. to, to get off of all fuels that burn. Right. So let's talk about some of those pledges you mentioned then. Everybody gets together in Paris a few years ago. We saw all this big applause. Sounds like a great moment. But then you also said these countries haven't been living up to their words. So what does success look like for this conference if all that great talk hasn't really amounted to much? You know, hopefully we would have much more evidence right in front of our eyes of the cost of doing nothing as, you know, billion dollar storms become daily. And 
that everybody would realize this and realize how little has been done and they would up their pledges. So not just come back to the table, but come back and just double down right. and say what we said about our zero emissions by this year, we got to do it 10 years faster. But we're sort of entering the golden age of greenwashing, both on a corporate and a nation state level, where everybody knows it's the right thing to say, but the practical steps of incentivizing entire boardrooms or heads of industry tying their compensation directly to the coal they're not digging or the fuel they're not burning is a, is a whole different complicated thing. And whether how much government intervention has to make that work, whether it's a democracy is even capable of, of making that work because we argue over the littlest things now, all of this is in the air. And so it's really a study of human nature as much as it is real politic diplomacy. Right, politics. So let's talk about the U.S. here then. Last week, we started getting some idea of how much room climate would take up in President Biden's social safety net package. And it turns out it'll be about $500 billion. That's the biggest chunk out of anything in the whole package. So that sounds pretty good, right? Yeah. I mean, where does the U.S. stand on the world stage then when you hear things like that? We're way behind Europe. We have just a handful of wind turbines offshore you know, whereas countries like, tiny countries like Denmark, a quarter the size of Wisconsin, they're 50% wind, you know. Wow. And so Biden's plan is the most ambitious, but that's not saying a lot because we don't have another one. It's the first really <laughs> big one. This framework also makes the most significant investment to deal with the climate crisis ever, ever happened. It's a lot more carrots than sticks. It's, you know, it will make it easier for you to insulate your house better, maybe get an electric stove or car. Tax credit to help people do things like weatherize their homes so they lose less energy. Install solar panels and develop clean energy products. But not a lot of sort of institutional levers, incentives that would, pricing structures that would incentivize a big utility company to get off coal and gas mm. as fast as possible. And the guy who didn't like that idea was Joe Manchin. Well, I know that America's not doing enough. America's doing everything it possibly can. We're going to do a lot more. It's not enough. And I'm so scared for my future. And the West Virginia senator, Democrat, felt the wrath of activists for holding up just any sort of meaningful climate legislation. Why should I be in school if you guys won't listen to the Let me ask you. Here, you won't listen to the facts. Listen one second, I'll give you the facts. You know, hunger strikers are now both in front of the White House and putting pressure on these members of, of Congress. For the first time in New York, Extinction Rebellion, which is known much more for direct action protests, uh, partnered with the Sunrise Movement in New York, which is much more known for just having a sit-in in Congress, but generally staying out of the streets. They shut down FDR Drive on the east side of Manhattan at rush hour. And I'm not sure how Glasgow can feel like a success if she isn't coming and Putin isn't coming. And mm. there's all this sort of disappointment with Biden's inability to bring a robust package over. I don't know what happens to those angry kids who, who are really looking for answers and really looking for action. Right. A lot of these activists are saying the important stuff happens when the world leaders go home and try to make policy. Exactly. OK, Bill Weir, our chief climate correspondent. Thanks so much for filling us in. My pleasure. Good to be with you.
All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, kids under 12 are next in line to get the COVID vaccine. Is this the week it finally happens? Welcome back. Here's a little bit of what's happening this week. Tuesday could be a big day for kids and vaccines. The CDC's Vaccine Advisory Panel will meet to discuss Pfizer's shot for kids ages 5 to 11. Depending on how quickly CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky signs off on their recommendation, shots could go into arms as soon as Wednesday. Tuesday is also Election Day. The big races are in New Jersey and Virginia, where voters will choose governors. Democrats are paying especially close attention to Virginia, where Terry McAuliffe has been locked in a tight battle with Republican nominee Glenn Youngkin. We'll also be keeping an eye on local elections in Minneapolis, where voters will have the chance to end the city's police department as we know it. If the ballot measure passes, the department will be swapped out for a Department of Public Safety. The city council has been grappling with how to reform law enforcement after George Floyd was killed by police there last year. Okay, that's it for us this week. This episode was produced by Paula Ortiz and me, David Rind. Our production manager is Matt Dempsey. Our senior producer is Mohamed Darwish. Our supervising producer is Greg Peppers. And the executive producer of CNN Audio is Megan Marcus. Special thanks this week to Angela Fritz, Morgan Rimmer, and Jordan Gasparet. Okay, I'll be back next Sunday, but remember, Five Things is on all week long, starting tomorrow at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Check us out on your smart speaker or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you later.